Hey, Rachel, you think the original five X-Men are ever going to make it home? Back to the past Beast yanked them out of? No. They're on their second ongoing series. I'd say they're here to stay. Well, not all of them. Yes, all of them. Not in all new X-Men, though. Who's missing? Marvel Girl. Oh, right. She's over in Extraordinary X-Men. So who else is running around in all new? It's not just the four guys, right? Well, there's Wolverine. Formerly X-23 Wolverine, not Old Man Logan. Uh, yeah, Laura Kinney. And Oya. Oh, sweet. I've missed her. Anyone else? Evan. Wait, Kid Apocalypse Evan? That's the one. Oh, he's my favorite Apocalypse. He is everyone's favorite Apocalypse. He's adorable. And somehow he's got an even weirder backstory than the original. I love that. Uh, how so? I mean, he's basically just a clone of Apocalypse, right? Oh, God. Um, I only remember bits and pieces, but it's. I think it's got something to do with the world. Rachel, most of us call it Earth. Dude, no, no. The world. The shrunk-down, time-dilated, weapon-plus, super-science biodome. You oh, remember this. Yeah, that world. Right, and there was some stuff on the moon. I don't know. Hey, Dennis, you're writing Kid Apocalypse these days. What's his deal? He's a clone of Apocalypse. Uh, yeah, but he's good. What's up with that? Also, isn't he actually like a clone of a clone? Maybe I should begin at the beginning. A few years back, a group of Apocalypse's acolytes had cloned him on the moon. And X-Force, that's the iteration of X-Force before I wrote it that Rick Remender wrote, went to stop them. Phantom X killed the child clone, but felt bad enough to collect a drop of his blood, from which he then cloned a new one back in the world. Ha! Told you the world was in there. Oh, well, then what happened? Using the world's time dilation technology, Phantom X set up the clone of a clone of the world's greatest supervillain to grow up in the illusion of a bucolic Kansas farm, with himself as a kindly, eccentric uncle figure. What?! Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 81 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So we are here with Dennis Hopeless, who we've been wanting to get on the show forever. Hi, Dennis. Hey, guys. How's it going? Really well. So you've got a lot of history with the X-Books. Most recently, uh, you've just wrapped up runs on two Secret Wars titles, Inferno and House of M. Before that, it was Cable and X-Force and Avengers Arena. But way back at the beginning, and I think that the context in which your name has most frequently come up up here, is that you wrote one of our very, very, very favorite X-Men standalones, and that is X-Men Season 1. Yes, that was my first paid job, actually. First time I ever got paid to write comics was X-Men Season 1. Dude, you came out of the gate strong. My first paid job was like bagging groceries. That was way less cool than X-Men Season 1. Thank you. And now you are moving into the center of the X-Line. You're writing all new X-Men as part of all new Marvel. And this is a book for those of you who have not been following the announcements and solicitations that mostly follows four of the original five X-Men time displaced and brought up to the future as complicated time travel revenge by beast. Just forget that part. Anyway, the teenage time displaced X-Men plus a couple kids from the Jean Grey school plus Laura Kinney, who has gone from being X-23 to being Wolverine on a road trip. Yep. I think X-Men Season 1 is part of the reason I got the job, because um, we were looking for someone to follow Bendis on the crazy premise and a, and a really well-received run. And they know that I love those characters and that I love X-23 Wolverine from working on Avengers Arena, so they knew I would take it. It's pretty intimidating to follow one of my favorite writers on characters I love that much. But yeah, X-Men Season 1 was, like I said, my very first paid job. It was one of two first Marvel jobs. And... I had a great time with it, so it was hard to say no. 
Yeah, so X-Men Season 1, so how did that work? I mean, I know Marvel did a bunch of Season 1 books for a bunch of different characters, so how much was it them just saying, hey, retell the origin of the X-Men, and how much was it you deciding kind of what direction to take that? Well, I honestly, I misunderstood the assignment. I put together a collection of some of my creator-owned work that had not been published and pretended it was all about to come out and sent it to Marvel editors <laughs> and heard nothing back for like a year. And then eventually somebody picked it up and read it for some reason. And um, they called and offered me uh, a Legion of Monsters job. They, like basically they had Legion of Monsters on the schedule and Kieran Gillen was supposed to write it and couldn't. So they, they needed the pitches for a thing to, to go ahead and put that book out. Um, so I was working on that and the editor who brought me in, Alejandro Arbona, was also working on X-Men season one and whoever the original writer was dropped out. And so Jamie was already on board and, um, they needed a new writer. So I came in really late in the process and Alejandro just basically wanted me to say yes and didn't really explain exactly how it worked. So my first three pitches were adding a bunch of continuity and changing a bunch of stuff to, um, the original story. And I kept saying, no, no, no. And then I, uh, eventually pitched my Friday night lights idea where the fights from the original Stan and Jack issues were like the football game on the either end of a Friday night lights episode. And I would tell a story in between. And, uh, it wasn't until the other books came out that I realized that everybody else was just retelling the original stories with cell phones and new dialogue. Well, for what it's worth, I mean, I loved that approach because I think if the Silver Age has a single weakness for X-Men, it's that you don't get to see a lot of that stuff. It's that the character personalities are just kind of little sketches around the fight. So I love seeing that reversed. Yeah. And it's such a good scenario for playing with that and with character dynamics. And now you've got very, well, I, I guess, you know, changed significantly, but versions of those characters who feel very much derived from those season one, you know, the original group of X-Men, and you can kind of take them in wildly different directions. Are there any of the places that you'd originally hoped to go with them that we're going to see come up in all new X-Men? Yeah, I, mean, I think X-Men season one is a prequel in my head, sort of, to all new X-Men. Obviously, the characters have been in the here and now for a while, so they've come a distance from what we did in X-Men season one, and some, th some things have changed drastically in their lives. Yeah, I definitely took, like, the Bobby that existed in my head from four years ago and put him through everything that, that happened in the Bendis run and then thought, where would his headspace be now? And did that with all the characters. So it's going to be fun to be able to change stuff. Because that was the other thing. In X-Men season one, like, I could elaborate on things, like, Professor X is a super creep in the first few <laughs> years of the X-Men. So I got to play with Jean Grey, like, acknowledging that. Like, what this guy is doing is weird. But I couldn't change the character very much. And I couldn't advance those storylines past what they were. I could just kind of build up on it. So it's fun now to be able to go in, like, you know, full speed ahead, change the characters. Also, the, one of the themes of the book is, you know, this is sort of their days of future past. Like, the, the modern Marvel Universe is crazy and awful relative to what they came from. So they very much don't want to become the adult version of themselves for various reasons. And they have, you know, because that's where their mindset is, they can jump off the path that we've seen before and go to different places. So that's going to be a lot of fun to play with. So speaking of the original characters revisiting the Silver Age, for me, your Jean Grey is kind of the definitive Jean Grey. She's a character who, especially in her Silver Age iteration, tends to be really underwritten. And taking her front and center, making her narrator, making her point of view character was a really critical shift for me. You don't have her on all new X-Men. She is off with Jeff Lemire. What advice would you give him? What advice would you give other writers in terms of how to write an engaging and interesting Jean Grey? How do you make her work? Uh, my advice to Jeff would be give her back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to everybody else, 
I mean, yeah, I think like the only thing that really felt three dimensional about the character in those in those sixties issues, which part of this is the time and and just how comic books were written at the then. I don't want to like crap on them that much, but she had all of these teenage boys in her life that all like expressed mild interest in her, but didn't give her enough credit. And I think later on, like in the Claremont years, Jean reached out and grabbed that credit. You know, like she reached out and said, like, "Oh, I'm powerful. Like I'm important. I'm terrifying, <laughs> planet eating bird monster." But some of that had to be there from the beginning. Like, we just didn't see it. She's a strong, interesting character that just kind of took a while to find herself. And if you take that and, and work backwards, you can kind of find the, the gene that I did in X-Men Season 1 and the gene that I think, you know, they've been disused and that everyone can use going forward with Teen Gene. So another character that I'm really curious as to how he's going to turn out in all new X-Men is Angel, because Angel was kind of like, you know, the X-Men season one Angel at first when he got pulled forward in time, got a little bit more rebellious. And then there was that whole thing from the Black Vortex with him becoming this sort of archangel demigod figure of light thing. I mean, it seems like that's something you sort of have to address. So I well, guess he was... kept it, too. He's the only exactly. one of the kids who kept their vortex form. Yeah. Although I kind of wish Iceman kept his weird ice elf form. That was so weird. <laughs> yeah. So as far as Warren, like, what's your take on that uh, with, you know, getting these characters, some of whom are not very changed and then one of whom who very much is? More than anything, Warren's wings are now fire. I know that's like a weird sidestepping answer. But I don't think Warren was broken. And I think he definitely went through that. And that's, you know, that's something that we can play with a little bit. But I think that the character is young enough and relatable enough without all that, that we can kind of just like push him past. The, the eight month jump allows us to take some of the more complicated, more confusing stuff and not avoid it or ignore it, but just not really focus on it. So we might get back there. But when we show back up, Warren is very much the Warren, you know, his wings are just on fire now. <laughs> and, you know, they've been metal before, so whatever. We've, we've seen one with all kinds right. of wings. The, well, the next ones are going to be candy. The other thing is that there are plans with, you know, like the adult Warren has gone through some really crazy stuff since X-Force. Yes. And there are plans there. So I kind of want to, <laughs> to kind of pull our Warren back as hard as I can and keep him teenage Warren, um, just because it fits the book better. And, and like I said, we won't be ignoring Black Vortex. I love Black Vortex. I love Sam Humphreys. I, I'm, I'm not ignoring it. It's just not going to be in the forefront because I think it complicates the story in a way that's unnecessary. So you mentioned that you'd wanted to have Gene in the book. Are there any other characters who you'd like to eventually get your hands on for this title? I really wanted to get Quentin Quire in there, but it may be a while because I think that we need ID to develop in a way that her ex-boyfriend will make it difficult to do. <laughs> that character has been in a strange... She's very, very interesting to me. And she's been developed in a way that I don't think is the most interesting way to do it. And so bringing Quentin in kind of like gives him the spotlight. I don't want to do that yet. So, yeah, we had a long conversation about that because I love Quentin Quire. There's a bunch of villains that I'd love to use that I can't necessarily talk about because the X-Universe is weird coming out of Secret Wars. But yeah, I had a whole list. So the X-Universe being weird coming out of Secret Wars kind of brings up another question, because there's been a lot of discussion and speculation about the role and the position of the X-Men line in the larger Marvel Universe, and also of the individual books in the line and how they fit together. So I'm wondering kind of how you see those, how you see your team as fitting in the X-Men larger, you know, corner of the world, and that corner fitting in the larger Marvel Universe right. coming out of Secret Wars. Extraordinary X-Men, uh, the Jeff Lemire, Humberto Ramos book, is very much like how the X-Universe is developing and what's been going on since Secret Wars. Like that book is very focused on the, the larger plot and a larger scale of things. And it will address all of that stuff head on. So the, like the conflict with the Inhumans, what exactly happened with adult Scott, why mutants are hated and feared more than ever again. All of that stuff will be addressed directly and extraordinary. 
Uncanny X-Men is sort of like an X-Force book in that it's villains and reformed villains doing what needs to be done. But in this new world, that team isn't X-Force. That's the Uncanny X-Men. Like, that's what the Uncanny X-Men need to be in this new crazy landscape. So Colin's book is the, like, hard-hitting come in and shoot first, ask questions later or whatever. And then basically they came to me with, we want to do another all new X-Men. We want to use the teenage characters. Jeff's already called dibs on Gene, but you get everybody else. What would you do with it? And those two books kind of carve out a lot of that pie, like a lot of what we, they were planning those two books to take care of. And I felt that one thing we kind of didn't have was an old school teen angst character drama book that kind of stepped around all of the big story, like lived in that world but did its own thing. And so what I pitched was the all-new X-Men have seen what happens when X-Men and mutants try to save the world for mutant kind over and over. It just keeps getting worse. And they're like, F that noise. Like, we're going to go back to what the original plan was. We're going to go be superheroes. We're going to show people the mutants do good things, and we're going to lead by example. And so it's sort of that, like, post-college place where you're political for the first time, and you think you've got it all figured out, and the adults are ruining the world, and you're idealistic, and, and want to just go take it all on by storm before, like, the good world kind of crushes your spirit. So that's kind of what they're doing there. It's a combination of, like, early 20s, late teens, early 20s political activism and backpacking through Europe before you have to take the job in the mailroom. So, yeah, we're, we're doing that. So for me, that kind of reminds me of certain eras of New Mutants and even the early run of X-Force, despite its strange qualities, I guess. Just these characters who have been in this structure, they have all the structure built up around them and especially around their history, and now they've finally gotten out. You know, Magneto's no longer their headmaster, or Xavier's no longer their headmaster, and they're out on their own. And so obviously it's a different set of characters, but do you see All New X-Men, your run of it, as having kind of some similar elements to that? Or is it more De of definitely. a new... Like yeah. I see it as, it's like the highest profile teen book we could do in the X-Men line. You know, it's the original X-Men as teenagers doing what they originally did, but in this world where years and years and years of crazy has gone on. So yeah, that's definitely the kind of book that I wanted to do. And you know, the, the Marvel Universe is cool. There's a lot of neat places you can go and, and, and stuff you can smash your action figures together with. And I wanted to take advantage of that while the other books are dealing with the larger problem. And, and it's not that, that the larger conflicts won't come into play. Like at some point, my kids are going to have to deal with, with all of that and it'll all come to a head. But right now they're just like, you know, we're young, we're invincible. <laughs> we know better. Let's go do it right. And that's, you know, it's rife with places for drama and, and characters arcs and, and exactly what I want to do with the book. You know, Miles, you've mentioned original X-Force and in light of that and Dennis talking about older books and antecedents for this, when you think of sort of X-Men, your definitive version, either creative team, team lineup or era, what do you go back to? Uh, it's tough because it depends. In college, I would have said probably the cartoon. Like the thing that was the most seminal to me whenever I was growing up was the 90s cartoon because of my age. And because, you know, I read Claremont X-Men, but mostly intermittently because I was a child and didn't have regular access to it. And then I've gone back and reread it since. But you never get that. I'm a 12 year old and this is important back. You can't go back and read stuff with that mind. And the stuff that I soaked up the most at that time was the cartoon. And then new X-Men, both new X-Men. The Grant Morrison, um, Frank Quietly run a new X-Men and, uh, Astonishing X-Men were like, they hit the right spot in college. 
like like one and then the other. One was right, like right when I got back into comics in college. Um, Grant Morrison New X Men was was taking off, and it and it just felt new and fresh and interesting. And it all the stuff I loved about the the movie was in there. I, I was really into it. And then by the time that had ended, I was kind of over it and and graduating college and moving on. And then Astonishing came out and was this awesome throwback to stuff that I like remembered remembering from when I was a kid and and hit all the right the right notes. So then it's a weird answer for my age because I'm. I was an adult when these things happened, but uh, those were the ones that are the most important to me as a reader before, you know, starting to work for Marvel and going back and rereading everything and, and sort of discovering the classic stuff that everybody else loves. That actually sounds really familiar. The cartoon was what got me mostly into X-Men. I mean, I had, you know, a collection I'd been sort of reading with. That was what really cemented my interest. And then it was Morrison that brought me back. So, yeah, and I suspect it's that way for a ton of readers. Those were just such strong X-Men touchstones right there. I think it is a really generational arc, too, that a a lot of us who who grew up sort of in and out of it with kids and then suddenly when we were adults with you know, some, some kind of independent access suddenly had these really good versions. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Brett White, who he works for CBR, um, is a friend of mine, and we were talking at New York Comic Con this last weekend. He never stopped reading comics. He's roughly my age, maybe a little younger, but he never stopped reading comics. So they're like the meat of the the X Force run, like the post Liefeld X Force run, to him is the most important thing because all of that stuff really spoke to him at a time when I wasn't paying attention anymore. Like I I got out during that whole period and read that later whenever I was preparing for Cable and X Force. I didn't get back into X-Force until Rick Remender's run and everything that you know was really important to Brett and people that read through the mid-90s and late-90s. I didn't read that until I was an adult preparing for writing Cable and X-Force. So I think it all depends on when you start and stop paying attention because there's so much good in there. Speaking of Cable and X-Force, so I actually hadn't read that run until relatively recently. I think I was like working a, a convention or something and just like downloaded all of it on the tablet that I brought. But what a glorious run that is. I had never really been much of an, an X-Force fan, but that seemed to take all of the ridiculousness of 90s X-Force and, like, turn it into something really compelling with really uh, amazing characters. And I, I didn't know that that was possible. Thank you. Yeah, that was a weird book for me. I'm, I'm, there's a lot of sink or swim to my Marvel career. Like, I feel like they give me a bunch of stuff all at once. Like, they get, you know, they gave me my first miniseries uh, right out of the gate. And then gave me X-Men season one at the same time. So I was writing my first two Marvel books like simultaneously and freaking out and trying to decide whether or not to quit my day job. And then the same thing happened with my first two ongoings. I got Avengers Arena and Cable and X-Force launched the same day. So I was, I was developing my first two ongoing series at the same time and they both double shipped. So it was extremely overwhelming from a just like, how do I wrap my mind around this? How do I plot for more than five issues? And also, what the hell do I do with X-Force? Because all they told me was, we want to make a new X-Force starring Cable that is nothing like Rick's book. And at the time, Rick Remender's X-Force was my favorite comic book. Like, I loved the shit out of that run. And they were asking me to go in a wildly different direction. Which, thank God, like, trying to follow that with that would have been a nightmare. Um, But yeah, so I kind of had to fall back in love with Cable. Had to figure out, I loved Cable as a child. What the hell did I like about it? And how do I make this cool? And... Part of that was going back and reading the stuff I'd missed, like reading the Cable and Hope run and, um, you know, Cable and Deadpool and all this stuff with the character that had been done since, you know, the crazy early 90s stuff that I remembered and realizing this guy's just a badass that doesn't want to explain himself. He's an 80s or early 90s action hero 
who will kick the shit out of you and shoot you in the face, but he doesn't want to stop and explain himself. So all I have to do is surround him by really obnoxious, talkative characters who are good at what they do, but drive him insane. And there'll be, you know, there'll be all sorts of fun places to go. And then, yeah, and then once I read the cable series that had hope in it, well, he's also got a daughter who's exactly like him, but never shuts up because she's 16 and we were off and running. So yeah, I mean, I think initially I was trying to do 18 or expendables or something. <laughs> and then eventually it became this weird, like dueling banjo buddy cop thing with Domino and Colossus and uh, Forge and Nemesis with Cable kind of trying to keep them all from killing each other. You keep on actually doing this, and Jean Grey was kind of the first, but you're a writer I associate at this point very closely with bringing back and excavating sort of habitually underwritten or inconsistently written characters and making them really work. Um, and, and that's particularly from that run and from Colossus and Domino and Boom Boom, who we hadn't seen, I think, since Next Wave at that point. <laughs> Boom Boom is amazing to me because I basically was unfamiliar with the character until Next Wave. And Next Wave is another one of those books that hit me in the right spot. Like I was a huge Warren Ellis fan. I was reading everything he did. And that was and Stuart Eminem is incredible on that book, too. But every character in that I loved. So I had been pestering Nick Lowe to let me put Boom Boom in the book. She was supposed to be in the initial arc that, uh, like usual suspects cover that is our issue one cover originally had boom boom in it blowing a bubblegum bubble and we just couldn't fit her. Like it didn't fit into the plot. So I had to save it. But yeah, I, the only thing I knew about boom boom was from next wave and that's not really boom boom. Like she's basically Paris Hilton in that run. You know, whenever I'm getting ready to write a character, I go reread old stuff. So. I read a bunch of early Boom Boom appearances um, in preparation and found that I loved the character even more the way that she was originally written and kind of found what worked in Next Wave and then filtered it through who I believe the character was meant to be before that. And she's amazing. Like, it would be hard to write a Boom Boom solo series because <laughs> she very much needs a straight man, but everyone's a straight man relative to Boom Boom. So yeah, she's, she's just awesome. <laughs> so much fun to write and such a great person to throw in the middle of any conflict. And, um, yeah, I mean, so you're talking about kind of taking Boom Boom's old personality and filtering it through what had happened recently. And, uh, well, not happened, because Next Wave is, you know, only quasi-canonical. But what I really enjoyed was, uh, yeah, was your handling of Colossus in that run, and especially his pairing with Domino, which is definitely something I never would have thought of. But now it's like, well, of course Colossus and Domino are, are involved, and of course I'm ecstatic to see them in, you know, The Secret Wars Inferno. Like, where did that come from? Where did you get the idea of Piotr and Nina even like interacting very much, let alone being romantically involved? I had no interest at all in writing Domino. I didn't care about the character. Um, at, and this was early. This is before I'd done my research. But in my mind, she was another throwaway early 90s X-Force character I wasn't interested in. And I wanted to take Cable away from that. But Nick Lowe was just like, we have to have some classic X-Force characters in this. It can't just be Cable and Hope. You got to put somebody in there. And you need another female character. Like, let's do Domino. So, like, what the hell am I going to do with her? Like, I didn't know what to do with her. But Colossus had just been through some crazy stuff. Like, he was, this was coming right on the heels of Avengers versus X-Men. And so he'd been, like, a, one of the Phoenix Five and had, like, given whales feet and did all this crazy stuff um, with the Phoenix Force. And then he had a falling out with his sister where he, like, completely disowned her and his powers were all going crazy. He was just in a really dark, crazy-ass place. And he, you know, no longer had a relationship with Kitty and everything was going to shit. And I thought... This guy needs a rebound relationship desperately. So what are we going to do with that? Like, I was trying to figure that out. And then I realized that, like, Domino is the polar opposite of Kitty Pride. Like, if you're looking for a rebound relationship, this person makes a lot of sense. 
Plus, you know, Domino's attracted to big, powerful men with metal body parts. So <laughs> it makes it just made, it made some sense there. Like I, I could make it work. And then when I started writing them together, type, but it's not really in the Marvel universe, is it? There are quite a few. I, I, I know. Just it made some sort of like weird notebook paper sense. And then when I started writing them together, like that was exactly what he needed. He needed somebody that didn't want him to be, you know, like a big teddy bear. She wanted him to go do his job, and they could make out later, maybe. And then. You know, that's how it started. I think she just was attracted to him and thought it was fun and he needed someone. And then there's through the beginning of that arc, there's a push and pull. Like she doesn't want a relationship. She just like, you know, this guy works with her and, you know, she enjoys his company and is attracted to him. And he, you know, very much is a relationship person. So he's pulling in that direction. Playing with that, like once I got to that place, well, then it became like Sam and Diane or whatever, you know, like we're going to eventually we're going to get them together. And I, I have a thing for successful relationships. Like obviously the will they won't they is very, very good way to build drama. But I hate that they can't ever show the successful part of the relationship and still have and still make it interesting for very long. Like it either destroys the the show. It's usually a television show I'm talking about, but it usually destroys the show or they break them up 17 times before you get together. But like I'm in an amazing relationship. I met my wife when I was 19 and we've grown together and it's awesome. And I don't think our life is boring because we're happy. So I wanted to get there to get to the place where, oh, shit, we really work. And like, let's just be a couple on this weird team and have fun. And that's so awesome to see. I mean, yeah, for, for similar reasons, I'm always happy to see that myself. It's like, wait, but I like love. I like it when love works. That's interesting. But yeah, and then like in your Secret Wars Inferno book, we see Colossus and Domino, you know, together again, albeit in a very different alternate universe. But one of the things that was interesting to me about that is that these are a Colossus and Domino that aren't very new, that have actually, you get the impression, have been involved for a while. And their relationship does work for them. It does give them strength. And, you know, in a way, it even becomes critical to the resolution of the story. Yeah. And, and that was what I wanted to do with that. Because X-Force ended when it did, I didn't get to get to the place where they're like, we just work. Like, this isn't new and fresh, but it just works and we have a lot of fun. Uh, the, the only, the best example I can think of, of that in something, in like a genre of fiction that I like is um, in Firefly Wash. And I, his wife's name is escaping Zoe. me right now. Yeah, Wash and Zoe. They're awesome. Like they just work. They're a couple. They're married. They've been together a long time. They know each other and they work in the way that good couples work. And that's where I wanted to get with Domino and Colossus. So when I had an opportunity to show that version of him, like Colossus is messed up at the beginning of Inferno. Like that is a guy with a weird chip on his shoulder. He's obsessed with his sister. He threw his car into the wind all the time in order to do this thing. But when he goes home, he's got a partner and they work really well together. You know, they've built a life that works around that and she understands it. And is willing to tolerate it to a point and then we'll, you know, like kick him in the ass when he needs it. That was my favorite part of that book. And the thing that I think is like the heart that pulls you through. Cause I mean, that is a book where we murder most of the X-Men. <laughs> like the a demons lot of win. people it's die. I mean, yeah, you, I think we just see like dozens of X-Men die over the course of especially the last couple issues. Right. It's part of the fun of Secret Wars, the Battle World books is that, yeah, I mean, you can do whatever the hell you want. Why not murder all the X-Men and leave the world for demons? But I, you know, I wanted the, you need to care about the ending and we just follow Colossus through the whole thing and see that what he did was a horrible mistake and the world paid the price. But these two still work really well and Boom Boom gets to come along. So yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. We've talked a lot about heroes, but one thing that Inferno brings me back to is, you know, that book's got such a good trifecta of just scenery-chewing villains. Yeah, it does. You've mentioned really, really enjoying writing Madeline Pryor. Any other villains that you'd want to write or bring in? Oh, I love mutant villains. 
because they're easy to explain why they're angry. You know, like mutants are the one super powered Marvel Universe creatures. Just they get a bad deal. Like they, <laughs> the world hates them inexplicably. Their powers are the ones that the world has chosen to hate. <laughs> and, you know, these people are angry about it. I think it's important, at least for the kind of stories that I like to tell, it's important to figure out how to relate to the villain. Like, what is it that this person wants and how can we be interested in them other than the fact that they're just doing bad things that the heroes are trying to stop? And yeah, I mean, mutant villains are really relatable. You know, they're angry for a good reason and they're living in a world that's unfair and just trying to get theirs. So a lot of them. I mean, there's been a bunch, all new X-Men were digging into some of the classic X-Villains, like some of the ones you saw in X-Men season one and, you know, older villains uh, and showing kind of because we can show how the villains have changed too. Like the blob, for instance, that the kids taught, fought when they were teenagers is not the same blob they're going to encounter now. Like this is a man that's, that's gone, you know, how many ever number of sliding scale years have passed in the Marvel universe and has gone through a bunch of crazy shit. And is a much, you know, a much different person and a, probably a much more formidable villain than he was before. Or like Toad or, you know, like all of these villains that weren't a big deal whenever they fought them. You know, we can grab those people and show, hey, they've aged, they've changed, they've grown. And now they're scary. So, I, I don't know. I love I love all X villains. I don't have like a like a short list. I have a long list. But <laughs> we can definitely sympathize with that given what we do. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to all new X Men, you're working with Mark Bagley, and he's an artist who I think of as very sort of almost cartoonishly lighthearted and expressive. This is sort of the teen road trip book. But we've been told those stories before, and it usually ends in death and general trauma for the characters and readers, etc. I mean, Miles and I are halfway through covering the original New Mutants series. I think we're about two issues away from Doug Ramsey's death. <laughs> and um, I'm wondering how basically, you know, what whether that tone, you know, what we've seen on the covers, what we've seen in the solicits plays through and also what influence having Bagley on the book and as the artist on it has had on the book's direction. Well, other than just being really intimidating, like Ultimate Spider-Man was a really big deal to me when it first came out. I was like the perfect age to kind of dig into that version of Spider-Man. I was in college. I was just finding out I wanted to write comic books. And so following Bendis on a book that is being drawn by Mark Bagley is like a crazy uh, <laughs> mind trip or whatever. So that was really intimidating. But yeah, also, it is a pretty lighthearted book, especially relative to the other two. And we want to make sure that it's taken seriously. I think the tone we're going to is most similar to Bendis and Bagley's run on Ultimate Spider-Man, like where it, it is lighthearted. There's a lot of fun character stuff in between all of the crazy. But there's also like real deal character drama there. There's, there's like, for instance, in the opening arc, uh, Teen Scott is in a dark place. We really dig into that. And, and all of that ties to what's going on in the larger X universe post-Secret Wars I can't really talk about. But, you know, that opening issue does have Bobby making a giant thing out of ice for a bunch of spectators. And it does have uh, Evan wrestling an alligator. But it also has Scott in, you know, like deep in his own mind <laughs> trying to figure out who he wants to be and how he's going to come back from what is going on with the world. So yeah, we're, we're walking that line of we do want it to be lighter. We do want it to be like kind of a throwback X book, but we also want people to understand that it's not, and this isn't a Marvel Adventures book. We're going to dig deep at times and we're going to get real in spots. Yeah, we were talking earlier about how it's got a bit of a New Mutants feel, and I think that's one of the things that that book did really well, is it had these lighthearted, sometimes silly adventures. I mean, you know, sometimes it was very dark, but right. the light was always contrasted with the darkness of just being a teenager, being a young adult. And having to spend all of your time around the same handful of people who you grow to like, sometimes love and hate in equal measure. 
And so that's one of the things that excites me about all new X-Men is that we have these four characters who have, you know, spent such intense time together, both in their own memories recently and also just in, you know, the history of comics over the last number of decades, albeit older versions. But then we have a couple of new ones to throw them in with. And that's, I think, one of the things that is most interesting to me is that we're going to get to see Evan and Edie, who have like no history with the original five bounce off of them. And I'm well, really curious as to how that's going to go. Both been largely defined, as Dennis mentioned, by being ongoing foils for Quentin Quire, who tends to sort of jump into front and center of any title he's significantly part of. Yeah, both of those characters, I think they were introduced in really interesting ways and they were used as really good background characters um, for books that were about other characters. Uh, which makes me feel a little bit bad because they don't really come into the spotlight until the second arc in my book. So it's going to seem like we're doing the same thing. But there's a lot of interesting ground to play with there. I mean, Ivy is a character who, when we first introduced her, she thought she was a demon because she was a mutant. Like, she's so fiercely religious and grew up believing that, you know, like, mutants are evil. But she's also spent the last several years surrounded by good mutants who were kind to her and did good things. So she's perfect for that, like, I don't know, crisis of faith maybe is going too far, but like, who do I want to be? Like, how am I going to take all of this stuff that I grew up with and all of the stuff I've just experienced? And what is that going to be going forward? And I think these characters who, for different reasons, used to have one view of the world and now have a completely different view. She's perfect. Like, she fits in really well with that. Like, what is that going to be going forward? And how is she going to embrace the two sides of her? And that's kind of where everyone is. And then Evan is, I mean, obviously... When Evan Googles himself, he, she's like the world's biggest monster, like the the, the worst mutant of all time. <laughs> you know, as he was cloned from. But he's also this like super optimistic, like happiest person you know that just wants his friends to get along and be happy. And that that's powerful. That's powerful for people like Scott, who like is that really? Scott has spent the whole time since he's been in the here and now, like trying to decide what it means that the the current Marvel universe, Scott Summers, is what he's supposed to grow up to be. Or, you know, Hank, who Beast is a different kind of different from what Hank was. But, he, you know, he also yanked them into the future and has done some questionable things and experimented on himself and turned himself into a big blue monster. They're all struggling with that still. And and they've been here long enough that it, it, this isn't this isn't the future anymore. This is the, this is the present to them. This is a crazy present, but they're stuck here and they got to deal with it. So, like, yeah, all of the characters we brought in fit into that in a way that is interesting and makes sense, but also is a powder keg when you trap them in an Airstream trailer and a VW bus and send them on the road. Going back and looking at those, either in this book or in X-Men Season 1, have any of those characters been particularly challenging to find an angle on, to write, and to get into? Are there any that you had to really dig around to sort of find your versions of? Bobby in All New X-Men has been the most challenging because I want to make sure and do the revelation of his homosexuality right. Bendis brought all that to the surface, and I'm the one that gets to run with the ball. And I have a version of Bobby that exists in my head before that was revealed. You know, I very much love that character and don't want to lose that. But at the same time, Bobby is going through something that I personally have never gone through. So I've been um, talking to you know, different friends of mine that are gay that grew up, obviously not in similar circumstances, but grew up places where it took a while places and times where it took a while to figure out who they were going to be and, and what they were and, and, and how that worked. And um, so that's going to be a story we slow roll on purpose 
Like that's not going to be the focus of issue one. You're going to see Bobby kind of not wanting to talk about it and and then doing his own thing. And then we'll get there because I think it's a very important that we do that right. And like I said, I don't want to lose the Bobby that I know in my head while trying to do this larger storyline. So he's probably been the most challenging so far. And so as far as the other characters that are not original five that you have in all new, so Wolverine, Kid Apocalypse and Oya. Were those characters that you specifically chose to include or were those like sort of given to you by Marvel saying, hey, these characters are going to be in the book? Like, how did that all happen? I believe I would have asked for Laura if I hadn't been told she would be in the book. But initially they said the original four boys and all the Wolverine. And then it you know immediately became clear we needed another female character. And I love Evan because he fits so perfectly with what I was initially thinking. And I just love the character. Plus the idea of like the original old school X-Men and Teenage Apocalypse. Like it just, it <laughs> just kind of fits perfectly. Anyway, so then when we went looking for another female character, yeah, ID or Nick Lowe says ID and he was the editor of the X office whenever the character was created. So that's why I say ID. But when I used to read it, I said ED. So I, anyway, oh yeah, we'll call it that. <laughs> She fit. She made sense. She fits with Evan. You know, like they're a pair that makes sense. And I felt like there was a lot to play with there. See, I mean, it it was not a long conversation to get us there, but yeah, that's how we got there. Cool. And I mean, I know you can't really give spoilers away, but if you can say, can we look for more cast expansion as the book continues? Or are these basically like your core characters? They're probably my core characters for a while. I wrote Avengers Arena, which started with 16 characters, and I'm not that much of a masochist to to throw characters in without removing them anymore. It's very difficult with a cast larger than this to not have most of them be wallpaper most of the time, unless you have some sort of plot that allows you to split them up a lot. So it's possible we'll move people out and move other pieces back in. It's possible we'll add one or two later. But for the foreseeable, this is the core cast. So I think with that, we're going to move on to listener questions. We put out a call for these. Folks answered. The first couple come from anonymous listeners on Tumblr, and someone would like to know your take. They would like to know who is sexier, Beast or Nightcrawler? We have the hard-hitting questions here on Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men. <laughs> well, they're both pretty sexy, but they're like sexy in a different way, right? Right, exactly. Um, well, Nightcrawler is like a weird, sexy priest. Like he's a swashbuckling, like a live swashbuckling, sexy priest, which is interesting. I don't know. It depends on the era. I think Excalibur Nightcrawler is super sexy. And I think, I mean, Hank is like the like the perfect bear in a lot of ways. Like he's a big, I don't know, like I'm like a big kind of hairy guy. So I can appreciate all of the ways in which I hope Hank is sexy. It's a tie. It's a tie. They're very different. It depends on your taste. And you know, really, they're good buds anyway. So I think they would be happy to, to share that crown, the sexy right. crown. As long as they both get credit, they're happy. <laughs> All right, let's see. And from another listener on Tumblr, given that the all-new X-Men crew are still teenagers, what teen hobbies do you think they would have outside of the super stuff? Oh, we delve deep into that. <laughs> yeah. Like, I have to force myself to write the super stuff. The book is basically about all of the other shit that they do. Yeah, like in the first issue, you see Hank and Idy and Evan have gone on what they call a nerdcation, or I guess what Bobby calls a nerdcation, where they're like doing all of the tourist stuff around the United States, but in like a obsessed with science way or whatever. And there's the shot with Evan wrestling an alligator because it goes to an alligator wrestling place and he doesn't understand that he's not supposed to be the one that wrestles the alligator. <laughs> uh, so that's what Evan would do. Evan would go and wrestle beasts, apparently. Bobby goes to what is basically South by Southwest and dances and builds a big ice thing. Yeah, that's what the book is full of that. I don't want to give them all away, but we will definitely see all of their extracurricular activities. And okay, we actually have a question from uh, Twitter from Sean Golly, which is, what are some challenges or surprises you found with revisiting the original 5X-Men? The hardest thing for me is just that I did it once before. So, uh, you know, like I, I read all the early stuff for X-Men season one, so I have all of that in my head. 
And then I've been, as a reader, I've been experiencing what they've been through since they came into the modern 616. So yeah, I think the hardest thing initially was reconciling those two things, like the Bendis version and my version and where it could tie them together. Because we were tasked with updating it a little bit. So our Bobby had like a Justin Bieber haircut and everything was a little bit more modern. And I feel like Bendis and Eminem's run, they did a lot of the same stuff, but they kept them more 60s, like still in the checkered suits and stuff. So part of it is just like, taking those two things and kind of weaving them together so that I have versions in my head that work. At this point, I have them all. They all live in my head. They're a good part of my crazy. So it's not that challenging to write the characters, but it took a minute to, to find them again. And now I'm just imagining you as sort of Legion, except instead of having a bunch of weird monsters in your head with different powers, it's just like the original five X-Men being really charming and delightful all the time. That is the only reason I can write dialogue. Like if I just sit there and like let my eyes go soft as if I'm trying to see a magic eye poster, and then imagine whatever the scenario is and listen to the characters talk and type it out and then take those 14 pages and edit it down into two so it'll fit in a comic book. <laughs> Dude. Well, Dennis, man, thank you so much for being on the show. Like, we are super psyched that you're now writing one of the flagship X books and we're super psyched we finally got a chance to talk to you. This has been awesome. Yeah, thanks so much because I have so many people come up to me every time I do a convention and tell me that they either want X-Men Season 1 or love X-Men Season 1. Man, they were introduced to it through your show. So I really appreciate how much love you've given me. And I hope you guys like the new book. And I'll take this moment to say once again to the five or so of you who still haven't read X-Men Season 1, you should do that because it is just ridiculously damn good. It's Dennis and Jamie McKelvey and everything that we really wished the actual Silver Age had been in a really, really beautiful self-contained form. Go get it. Read it right now. We can wait to do the outro till you're done. You can pause. <laughs> That's right. The advantage of a podcast is you can read all of the comics we tell you to read while you pause it. Exactly. We'll still be here. We so, exist in a continual present. And so, Dennis, when does All New X-Men number one come out? It got pushed a little bit. I think it now comes out in December. All of the X-Books got pushed ahead a month. So I believe sometime early December. Okay, so you've got a month to build anticipation about this, listeners. Obviously, to you know, let your stores know, it's past final order cutoff, but most of them can still at least hold issues. Yeah, and I'm sure a book like that, pretty much everyone's going to have anyway. And where can folks find you online? I have two 11-month-old babies, so I'm not online as much as I should be. But the easiest place to find me now is Twitter. So I'm at Hopeless Dent on Twitter, and I will respond to just about anything. So if you have any questions or, or want to yell at me, I'm there. Okay, and we'll make sure to drop a link to that in the As Mentioned page. I think that's about it. Now, the Teenage X-Men will be hitting the road in all-new X-Men number one coming later this month. Much sooner, however, Miles and I are going to be hitting the road and heading to Las Vegas for Vegas Valley Comic Book Fest. That is next weekend. It is Saturday, November 7th in Las Vegas at Clark County Library. It is an entirely free convention with an amazing guest lineup. And in addition to tabling and a couple other panels, we are going to be doing our second ever live episode. We'd love it if you'd come down and see us again. Free show, Clark County Library, Las Vegas, November 7th. So Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those levels of support get you thanks on the show and a variety of silly character voices. Today, I believe I am turning things over to Apocalypse. Though my own incarnation has perished and been replaced by the mewling infant that is Evan Sabanur, only the weakest do not comprehend that Apocalypse is eternal. Time and again, my heralds and horsemen have failed, but Martin and Sean, in their power and wisdom, shall not. Truly, they are the strong... And when my resurrection is complete, they and I shall be stronger still. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. 
You can also catch us this week, or at least me, on Fan Bros in the first episode of the Secret Convergence on Infinite Podcasts. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. And thank you so much again to our guest, Dennis Hopeless, for joining us today to talk about all new X-Men, X-Men Season 1, and a whole, whole lot of other X stuff. Yeah, Dennis, this has been a blast, and you're welcome to come back anytime. We'd love to have you. Thanks so much for having me on. It was great. As Rachel was saying, our show is totally listener-supported and is ad-free, and that's made possible by our generous Patreon subscribers. If you're not one of those folks already and you'd like to become one, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, we'll be learning about why drugs are bad and meeting a giant teenage bird. As we dive into Louise Simonson's very strange first few issues of New Mutants. New Mutants.